Welcome to Broken Law, the podcast about the law, whose interests it serves, and whose it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. I'm Jeannie Hereska, Senior Advisor for Communications and Strategy at ACS. As you may have heard, we are reportedly post-COVID, and yet just this week, the National Assessment of Educational Progress reported steep declines in math and reading scores amongst U.S. 4th and 8th graders. These reflect results from math and reading tests that students took earlier this year for the first time since COVID entered our lives. This relates to a broader conversation about health equity and what we are ignoring or accepting when we claim we are post-COVID. On today's episode, we're discussing health equity and justice, what it is, how it should impact any conversation about being post-COVID, and the pivotal role that lawyers play in achieving it. I'm thrilled to be joined for this conversation by Ayelle Cannon, Associate Professor of Law at Georgetown Law School. She is a co-founder of Georgetown University's Health Justice Alliance, an academic medical legal partnership training the next generation of health, law, and policy leaders to work together in pursuit of health justice. Professor Cannon, welcome to Broken Law. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It is wonderful to have you on. We have been wanting to talk about this topic on Broken Law for several months, so I'm so glad we're getting around to it. This is a really complex topic, and so if it's okay with you, I just want to start with a couple definitions, including some of the terms I even used in the introduction. So we'll start really easy. What is health equity? Health equity is really a vision of a world in which all people have an equal opportunity to achieve health and well-being. It's really a public health goal that we have as a nation. And and the reason we have that as a really important goal is that we have so much health inequity in our nation. Even though we have so many resources in our country and spend so much money on healthcare, we have tremendous health disparities. And the result of that is that even with all of our resources and all of our spending on healthcare, we are actually very far down in terms of the rankings of healthiest countries in the world, even compared to sort of our peer countries. And it's this idea known as the American healthcare disadvantage. And when people really look into why, why is it that even with all our spending and all of our resources that we are less healthy than we really should be as a country, it really has to do with those tremendous health disparities. And we see them affecting people from you know, racial and ethnic minorities, people with disabilities, women, people who are LGBTQI, people with limited English proficiency. And we see poor health, we see higher rates of chronic health conditions. So for example, African Americans in our country have higher rates of asthma, diabetes, hypertension, cancer, preterm birth, and even lower life expectancy than their white counterparts. And we also see that these disparities persist even controlling for socioeconomic status. So a big part of understanding these really preventable health disparities is really understanding the the major role that racism plays in health inequity in our country. So all of those concepts are important to understand when we think about what that how we might work towards that vision of health equity, that world in, in which all people have that that equal potential and opportunity to achieve true health and well-being. That's really helpful. And so that's health equity. How do you differentiate that from health justice? 
Yeah. So health justice really centers the role of law and policy in all of this. It requires us to kind of acknowledge that law and policy have played a major role in our country in driving these health disparities and and often very intentionally by design driven by structural racism and other forms of discrimination. But health justice also requires us to act. So if law and policy have played a role in driving health inequity, we also need to ask how law and policy can play a role in in really eradicating those disparities. And so health justice forces us to really think about what can we be doing to use law and policy to advance health equity and that that vision we talked about at the beginning. I really enjoy this topic of it because we talk about this a lot at ACS, the role that lawyers and the law have played throughout our country's history in creating the structural inequities and the structural racism that is embedded in, in pretty much every legal system in the country to this day. So I'm excited to, to get into this because I think, like you said, if the law's been part of the problem, it can also be part of the solution. And so with that in mind, you've written about the health justice framework. Mm-hmm. What is that framework and how does that play a part in this conversation? The health justice framework is really sort of this growing idea and movement to to actually kind of unpack these big ideas and really try to understand the the role of law in advancing these disparities, both historically and currently, and trying to really understand the how and the why, really teasing apart where structural racism plays a role, really understanding the role of socioeconomic status and sort of intersectionality across multiple identities that people might be experiencing that could be driving sort of compounding health burdens and disparities. And thinking about this concept of of social determinants of health, which is is really this idea that research is increasingly bearing out that, in fact, as much as 80% of our health really has nothing to do with our genetics, our biology, or even the care we get when we go to the doctor's office, so much of it has to do with these social and economic conditions that affect our health every day. So, housing is deeply connected to health. Education, you you opened by talking about these sort of numbers that have, have come out more recently about kids falling behind educationally during COVID. And education is deeply connected with health outcomes. And so the concept of social determinants of health is to look at social conditions and see how they might be playing a role in health. And increasingly, there's been a focus on sort of more political and structural determinants of health, understanding that law and policy are really driving how these conditions play out in everyday life. So health justice is this framework to examine all of that and try to understand these connections between law and health outcomes and health disparities. But more than that, I think the health justice framework is also looking for opportunities to make a difference. And in that way, health justice is more than just sort of the the legal scholarship and law review articles that are kind of developing these ideas sort of increasingly, especially over the last few years with, with the pandemic and a lot of conversations on these topics. It's really a movement and a way for people to nationally and in local communities and 
through different organizations, work together to really think about how we can be changing law more structurally and engaging in law reform efforts that will improve health equity and how we can be looking towards our existing laws that we already have on the books, especially those that sort of go under-enforced for minoritized and marginalized communities and affect their health. And one last thing I'll say is that across all of these efforts, an important thread that, that needs to kind of drive the whole agenda around health justice are the goals and the agenda setting of the most affected communities. And so um, when we think about the role of lawyers and of policy advocates and policymakers, when we think about the role of doctors and public health professionals, health justice really encourages us to see you know, all of us as as really allies to those individuals and communities who are most affected and to think about how we can really be elevating their power to drive a health justice agenda. You've mentioned this a couple times, and I just want to tease it out because it's a, a tension or, or maybe it's better described as a myth that I've seen it multiple times, which is this notion that racial disparities are really socioeconomic disparities. Talk to me about this myth. Why is that not an accurate description of what's happening? That's a really important question because it is critical to look at these factors separately and also how they work in concert with each other to further marginalize people. So a great example that's getting a lot of attention in our country right now is around maternal health disparities. And so we know in our country that women of color and Black women in particular um, really have much poorer maternal health outcomes and greater rates of maternal mortality. So mortality during pregnancy, during labor, and immediately after, and, and in the months after giving birth. And there's actually, you know, a bill that was in a set of bills that was introduced in Congress around sort of a maternal health momnibus set of bills, because this has, has been, you know, such a huge problem in so many communities across the country. And at first glance, people might say, oh, well, you know, many of these challenges just affect, you know, women probably who are low income and maybe have, you know, a harder time getting access to prenatal health care because they're working, for example, multiple low wage jobs and maybe they don't have as much access to nutritious food. And all of those things are true as well. But actually, when you look at the data, you can see that these maternal health disparities persist across socioeconomic status. That's why we saw, you know, recently women like Serena Williams, you know, telling their story who have just tremendous financial privilege, but who still experience the impacts of structural racism. And the research actually shows that racism itself is a tremendous stressor that impacts health. It causes what's known as wear and tear on the body that accumulates over time. And and we know that so many different laws and policies in our country are driven by structural racism and compounding these disparities. And so it isn't surprising to me, sadly, that the research shows that, that maternal health disparities and so many other disparities related to other types of health conditions really do persist sort of across socioeconomic status. And so, you know, we have to acknowledge that when we're thinking about the problem and we're thinking about the role of of law and, and policy in driving health equity, because if we only look 
at socioeconomic status, we are going to miss a big part of the problem. And the, the maternal health sort of story in our country is is one very powerful example, I think, of this. Yeah. And so that's really helpful and really underscores that m- even more than thinking about health equity and racial equity as intersecting, they're almost running in parallel. They're so intersectional that it's hard to think of one without thinking of the other. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's I think it's also important to recognize that structural racism has actually relegated so many people of color in our country into poverty and lower socioeconomic status. And so when we see um, families that are affected both by racism and by marginalization as a result of poverty, we see these sort of compounding burdens. And we know that that many people who experience these health disparities actually, you know, might be dealing with them across other forms of identity as well, um, such as women or people with disabilities. And so, you know, more of, you know, sort of the more of these identities that have sort of experienced these health disparities that a person or a, a community, you know, has, you can see that the public health research sort of shows these compounding and, and multiplying burdens and harms on health. So in thinking about all of this and how we go about solving it, yeah. you've written about the need for two simultaneous approaches to addressing health equity. And those are the need to address the injustices that any one individual is experiencing, as well as as the broader structural injustices stemming from racism and white supremacy. So how do you think about these two overlapping and yet separate efforts? Yeah, you know, the good news is that that we as as lawyers and those who are interested in the law, we really do have a lot of tools in our toolbox. And that includes our power to use existing laws we have on the books to think about what it means to really remove those barriers to health that people might be experiencing in their everyday lives as a as a result of, you know, all of these health and justice connections that we're discussing. But then we also have the power to change laws, to get rid of laws that are harmful, to think about what a sort of an entirely new structure might look like, to think about systems that really need to be abolished, and to kind of work at both of those levels, which is really important if we're going to advance um, health justice, especially because the broader revolution towards health equity is going to take time. And we do need to focus on the needs of people who are hurting now. And we can we can play a powerful role. And also because doing that sort of individual legal advocacy on behalf of families that, you know, face health injustice really helps us understand how the law is playing out in people's lives in a harmful way, helps us see patterns, gaps in the law, and helps to really better inform the more, you know, systemic law reform efforts that we can engage in. And maybe the best way to kind of understand what this might look like on these multiple levels and to really think about what it might mean to engage, you know, affected individuals and communities on both both of these levels and in, in setting the agenda might be to sort of tell you a, a quick story. I would love that. So I teach at Georgetown Law School in the Health Justice Alliance Law Clinic, which brings medical and law students and healthcare providers together to really focus on on kind of both of these levels of advocacy. And we do that by integrating into pediatric health clinics that serve low-income families in Washington, D.C., and making it possible uh 
for the healthcare teams to actually look at legal issues at the same time that they're looking at health issues through this medical legal partnership model. And so when families come to the doctor, they actually get a legal checkup because those doctors have come to understand that a number of issues are affecting the children and and families that they serve that have their roots in the law and that they are going to have a hard time getting those kids healthy if they don't actually address some of these legal issues. And so they're asking families about the housing conditions they live in and their housing insecurity. They're asking about food and income insecurity, and they're asking about educational and family issues. And we as lawyers have tools to work on all of them. So there was a a family who will call for privacy sake, we'll, we'll call them the Cooper family today. And the Cooper family walked in into a pediatric health clinic that we worked with and received a checkup for their children and learned that one of the children had very high levels of lead in her blood. And, you know, you may recall that there was this lead sort of poisoning crisis in Flint, Michigan that got a lot of attention. And the major concern about all the lead in the water in Flint was that it can really affect children by by really causing brain damage and developmental delays. And we have similar concerns in Washington, D.C., where, where I'm working, because we have a lot of lead in paint and water. And it, so it's something the doctors are always looking out for. And so when they they learned that this, this young child had very high rates of lead in her blood and really had experienced lead poisoning, you know, they also gave the family that legal checkup. And they they saw that this family was living in really substandard housing conditions where there was not only lead in peeling paint all across the house, which is very dangerous for children, but there was mold and rodents in the house, which are are known to affect respiratory conditions and asthma, which the kids were struggling with as well. They also learned as they were trying to refer um, the child for treatment that her Medicaid had been erroneously terminated and she was not going to be able to get treatment if she didn't have Medicaid. And they also learned that her mother had been asking for help from her school because she was struggling and having developmental delays and that the school was not providing any services for the child as well. So our law and medical students kind of got on the case. They went out to meet with mom and learn about her goals and really looked to see where we had sort of under-enforced laws affecting the health of this family and how, you know, we as sort of this holistic team could do legal advocacy to kind of remove those barriers to health. And so our students advocated for all of these substandard housing conditions, including the lead in the paint to be remediated. They they advocated for the Medicaid to be turned back on. There are appeals that lawyers can do um, to ensure that happens quickly. And they advocated through the special education system for comprehensive evaluations for the child so her mother could kind of understand what services she needed and, and put those all into place for her at school. So these are examples of sort of laws we already have on the books that we have seen time and time again are sort of under-enforced for families that have been minoritized and marginalized. And lawyers can play a role in making sure that, you know, that those are being enforced properly like we did for the Cooper family. And back in the classroom, when we were sort of teasing out the structural racism behind this whole story and trying to understand how, you know, redlining and restrictive covenants and, and other laws and policies kind of led to segregation in our city of Black families like the Coopers in two neighborhoods with substandard housing conditions into under-resourced schools and that, you know, law and policy 
played a major role in driving the more systemic problems here, we started to think about what a different system might look like. And we had a goal of figuring out how the law could actually prevent this type of lead poisoning in the first instance. And many of the laws we have on the books across the country are very reactive when it comes to lead poisoning and don't involve a lot of accountability and enforcement. So we advocated with the D.C. Council for law reform to make sure that our laws in D.C. were more preventive. And that involved going up to the D.C. Council and having our law and medical students testify. But it also involved really centering our client because the woman that we're calling Ms. Cooper today, she wanted to ensure justice for not just her own family, but for other families across the city. So nobody would have to experience what she and her daughter did. And so we helped her get involved in policy advocacy and have her voice heard and tell her story in a way where she could advance justice and looked for opportunities to engage with community organizations, grassroots organizers to advance their agenda for justice around these issues. So the Cooper story, I think, tells us, gives us a sort of a roadmap for how on multiple levels, when we think about existing laws, we think about policy change, and we think about engaging, you know, those individuals who are most affected and promoting their voice and letting them drive the agenda, um, we can achieve health justice. That was so helpful to hear, because I think if you, at first blush, you hear, you know, you're going to go to the doctor and there's going to be a lawyer present sort of thing. I think, why why would there be a lawyer at the doctor's office? And yet hearing the story, you know, what is a doctor going to do if they're constantly sending you home to the same conditions that are sending you to the doctor's office in the first place? Yeah, exactly. And the, the medical legal partnership model that is really growing across the country and can be found in so many communities across America today really was born out of that frustration by doctors who were seeing kids, for example, come in and out of the emergency room with really serious asthma attacks. And doctors were giving those kids the best treatment possible, and yet they weren't getting healthy. And the doctors realized, wait a minute, as we're hearing about the housing conditions that these kids are living in, we realized that we alone do not have the tools to get these kids healthy. They really saw that health injustice playing out and had this idea of bringing a lawyer onto the treatment team to sort of work collaboratively to to really address these issues, to hold landlords who were leaving families in really horrible housing conditions accountable, to get those conditions fixed, to help families move where they needed to, um, to prevent evictions, because we know that housing conditions, problems like this can be a precursor to eviction, which then leads to sort of cascading health effects. So they they saw the value early on of, of lawyers and, and brought them in. And now at Georgetown and other law schools and medical schools across the country, we're actually educating students who are going to be our next leaders in our in these professions through this model to really think about health injustice to to realize that health justice is racial justice it's economic justice it's environmental justice you know and all to, if we're all working together we can we can really work towards those ideals i wanted to see that one other part of that story that really stood out to me and and that was how the legal team centered the Cooper's experience and their voices, that it wasn't just a lawyer being like, let me tell you about this family. It was making sure that the family could speak for themselves. Talk, can you elaborate on that? The importance of having impacted individuals and communities have a voice and a front and center voice in, in the broader structural reform process. 
Yeah, it's so important. The the families who are experiencing these health injustices, we have a responsibility to make sure not only that they have a seat at the table, but really that it's their table because they are the ones living the harmful impacts of you know, laws driven by structural racism and other forms of discrimination that are keeping people in poverty and creating these intergenerational cycles. And they are the ones who have the experience to not only help us as lawyers and and policy advocates and other professionals to understand what the problems are, but to envision the solutions they want to see, to name the priorities and where they really want to focus their time. And we teach our students every day about the ideas of client-centered lawyering. And our students work to practice that with Ms. Cooper, where they were really centering her goals and the priorities she had and what justice meant for her and her family. But we as lawyers can also center communities and grassroots organizations in that way, because it's easy enough for us to come in and say, this is the problem with the law and here are some new policies that we propose. But in the end, what matters is how it's going to play out in the lives of people who are experiencing these health disparities every day. And they should be driving the agenda. We should see our role humbly and think about how we can be resource allies, how we can use our expertise to just provide tools to elevate their power, because in the end, they really are the experts on these issues, not us. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. ACS is a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization committed to protecting our democratic legitimacy and supporting laws and legal systems that improve the lives of all people. If you're enjoying Broken Law, consider becoming a member of ACS today. You do not need to be a lawyer to be a member. Our laws and legal systems impact all of us. By joining ACS, you support Broken Law, our work to diversify the federal bench, our advocacy in support of Supreme Court reform, and truth, racial healing, and transformation and so much more. You also become a member of our nationwide network, which includes over 250 student and lawyer chapters. Join ACS and the progressive legal movement today by visiting our website at acslaw.org backslash membership. And now back to the conversation. I want to shift now to COVID, mm-hmm. which is really highlights a lot of these points. So I want to start with just a general question on this topic, which is how would you summarize the impact of the COVID pandemic on our pursuit of health equity in this country? Yeah, I think that um, COVID has highlighted longstanding disparities that those who work in the field of health equity have known about for a long time. And I think that it has, you know, brought some of these conversations um, more into the forefront of the American conscience and forced us because it has only both underscored and exacerbated these disparities to think about what it means to confront them. And I also think that some of the policy changes that we saw during COVID, such as eviction moratoria in different communities across the country, also showed us what might be possible in terms of policy change and and I think helped potentially us to envision what a different world might look like. 
I like how you described it as a compounding effect, right? COVID Mm -hmm. just really underscored the inequities that already existed and, and made them worse in many cases. Now that we're in this so-called post COVID world, what are your concerns about that framework? Because the disparities that were really drawn out from the pandemic haven't gone away are there concerns that by saying post COVID that we're we're trying to overlook or pretend that those compounding effects aren't there anymore? Yeah, it's it's really important that we don't kind of go back to business as usual, right? And <laughs> um, when it comes to these issues of health injustice, I mean the the neighborhood where the Coopers were living in Washington D.C. is is an area of town called Ward Eight, which is ninety percent African American and has high rates of poverty, and where people of color and especially Black people have been segregated in Washington D.C. east of the Anacostia River. And for a long time, there were these incredibly poor housing conditions, high unemployment, food insecurity, neighborhoods that are food deserts, medical deserts, meaning there's few grocery stores and few doctor's offices and few hospitals, lower quality education and and chronic stress, all of which harm health. And when COVID hit in Ward 8, we really saw um, these disparities be laid bare because that ward has 11% of the city's residents and had more than 20% of the city's COVID deaths. And why is that? It's those same social and structural determinants of health because throughout COVID, you know, there were higher percentages of essential workers in those neighborhoods who could not socially distance and had to go to work. There's greater reliance on public transportation for both work and school. It requires many people multiple bus stops to get to a grocery store because there are so few in their neighborhood. And so when many of us were staying home, you know, people in Ward 8 had to get on the bus and and pack into buses to go multiple stops. It's been more difficult to socially distance in high density neighborhoods and apartment buildings. So we can see how all of these same social determinants of health, um, you know, left people much more exposed and more in harm's way. And during the pandemic, we saw certain policies come into place that actually prevented things from being way worse, right? And so we saw eviction moratorium, like I said, like the one that we had in Washington, D.C. We saw sort of extra pandemic aid and food stamps coming to families. We saw emergency rental assistance sort of flowing from the federal government down into communities. Well, that really just gave us a chance to sort of slow the horrible (laughs) cascading impacts that we saw. But now those things are being lifted and drying up. And so we are seeing families who struggled for many months to pay rent and utilities now at high risk of eviction and going back into this like sort of national eviction crisis that that has been well documented. We were hearing from families, you know, making those difficult decisions like, do I pay for the heat or eat this month, which is a long documented phenomenon. And the, the problem is we, we for a moment saw <laughs> what it was like when eviction stopped. And, and in D.C., we saw a dramatic decrease in homelessness, which just sort of proved what many advocates had been saying for long for a long time, that evictions 
you know, cause homelessness. And so now here we are seeing what it means, quote, to be post-COVID. And I think when we were in it, I thought perhaps that the families we were hearing from during the pandemic who were saying, you know, I'm not eating this month because it's it's either me or the kids and I want them to eat, you know, or I'm so scared that I'm going to be evicted because I'm having trouble paying rent. I think that sort of level of crisis that we were in trying to help families in that situation, I I wasn't sure what was going to happen when we were sort of, quote, post-COVID. And now I'm seeing other just, you know, different but persisting forms of crisis for these same families that are that are harmed by racism and poverty and these sort of intersectional compounding harms. Yeah, as you said, to say we're post-COVID and as if that's a good thing, almost Mm -hmm. accepts then that the status quo pre-COVID was an acceptable status quo. So if we just get back to that, it'll be okay. Right, right. And we can't. I think we had enough lessons around these concepts of health injustice and saw just like tremendous explosions of unmet legal needs, which have been around for, for a long time, given this tremendous justice gap we have in our country. We can't go back to how things were. We have to take from those lessons and figure out how we can, you know, use the law to, to really allow people to achieve the well-being that they deserve. There are also so many areas where the consequences of COVID are still being felt and are going to be felt for years. And I think education is such a prime example of this, right? The test scores that came out this week, I think, really brought this into focus because when you see such a drop in test scores, more or less across the board, like you don't fix that in in one school year. And the reason I wanted to talk about this specifically with you is you've noted that whether someone graduates high school is one of the greatest predictors of lifelong health. And it really makes me wonder, you know, when we see this decline in test scores, it's hard to imagine, you know, fourth and eighth graders get tested at that specific grade, but it's hard to imagine that that same effect isn't being felt by 10th and 11th graders and what that impact is going to be on graduation rates. Right. And then what the compounding sort of lifelong health impacts are. And we know through this public health model called life course health development theory, we know that when educational harms and other social, economic, structural conditions affect children, that they actually have really compounding impacts across the whole lifespan and that, you know, sort of when these conditions produce children who struggle with their health in childhood, they're going to struggle as adults if we don't intervene early and robustly and sort of across systems. And so, you know, we we saw families during COVID who, you know, were trying to have their kids do school remotely as, you know, because schools were closed, who didn't have a computer at home, who didn't have internet at home. We saw families where, you know, five or six kids were trying to do school on one cell phone that belonged to a parent who was also trying to, you know, use that that cell phone as a lifeline for other things. And so it's not surprising to see the data that you just talked about. And also, I think as the data gets increasingly parsed, we're going to see the level of disparities within that data as well. And to really 
I think what's what's necessary now is to really think holistically about how to support families coming out of COVID and how to make sure that we don't just end up funneling families into more harmful systems as a result. So, you know, we have a lot of kids who are struggling with mental health needs and that's compounding these, you know, these educational impacts. And we have to make sure that that kids aren't being funneled into the school to prison pipeline and instead are receiving the supports they need both educationally and social emotionally to be able to achieve in school and and really thrive because those things are so deeply connected. With the time that we have left, I really want to talk about lawyers and how lawyers and the law can help in this regard. A number of our listeners are lawyers or law students. And so we always like to focus on their part in this. And you've argued that the justice gap in our country affects health and drives health disparities and that access to justice is necessary for health justice. So what does access to justice have to do with the conversation that we're having? So the Legal Services Corporation studied the justice gap just this year in 2022 and found that low-income Americans do not receive the legal help they need for as much as 92% of their civil legal problems. And that is the concept of the justice gap, just how many people have really significant civil legal issues that, that aren't being addressed. And many people don't even realize that they have a legal issue or that a lawyer could help. And because we know that housing, you know, food and income insecurity, family stability, educational attainment are all, you know, these well-documented social determinants of health, we know that those unmet legal needs, they are health injustice. They're not just injustice, they're also health injustice. And a few years ago, the American Bar Association issued a report really calling for this concept of civil right to counsel in these really fundamental areas of human needs. And in my work, I've looked at how all of the areas in which the ABA has said we need more lawyers and maybe even a right to lawyers because these issues are just so fundamental that they are also so fundamental to health and impact health inequities and and impact health justice. And so lawyers can make a difference in in advocating around these civil legal issues um, that really do deeply affect health. And we know, for example, that when a person is facing eviction and they walk into court, that they are highly likely to walk in not understanding their rights and without counsel, and that 90% of landlords in our country are represented. That is an, an inequity in and of itself and an injustice. And we know that evictions really affect health very deeply. Even the threat of an eviction is documented to cause such tremendous stress that it affects health. And so it's really important that people understand their rights and that where where they really need access to counsel, such as in eviction cases, they can then access that legal support. So I think that um, law students and lawyers can get involved by pursuing these careers when it's a good fit for them, getting involved in pro bono work and looking for those opportunities um, in their communities, you know, trying to see and understand these connections between law and health and how they play out on the ground and figuring out how to sort of collaborate interprofessionally whenever possible to support communities around 
around these issues. There's a number of organizations kind of working at these intersections that people can look into to get involved. So there's a National Center for Medical Legal Partnership where you can go and see if there are medical legal partnerships in your community, which is one of these sort of innovative access to justice models to work on these issues. But there are legal services organizations across the country who are working on them and you can find out more about where you can volunteer and help with those organizations through the Legal Services Corporation and the American Bar Association. There's also organizations working on these policy issues at local and national levels like Change Lab Solutions and the Association of American Medical Colleges Center for Health Justice. And then for for those of you who are following kind of the movement to promote civil right to counsel across the country, there has really been over the last few years some sort of this huge increase of sort of local municipalities and states um, sort of enacting civil right to counsel legislation, particularly in the area of housing and evictions and trying to make sure that people can access a lawyer when they are low income and they are going to court to be evicted with such huge consequences. And the National Coalition for Civil Right to Counsel is working on those issues. And you can go on their website and see really where there's actually pending legislation that people can get involved in in different states. But I guess I would leave our our lawyers and and other advocates listening with the idea of really what it means to get involved in your community and to to think and work and act and get involved locally. So so in addition to looking at these national organizations and seeing what lawyers are doing in the community, finding those grassroots organizations and those coalitions of community members working on the issues that you care about and learning about how they impact health and health disparities and, and figuring out how we as lawyers can lend our allyship and support and asking those community members and community organizations, how can we be most helpful? I really like the notion of a, of a civil right to counsel. I think that warrants its own episode because, you know, we get into consumer law, we get into immigration, we get into family law. There are so many areas where that can make s- such a difference. You know, it's, it, it's one thing to know you have a right, but if you can't enforce it, mm-hmm. it's, you know, what good is it to you? It's still astounding to me after looking so deeply into these issues and working on them every day for for so many years that people in our country can lose their home, they can lose their children, they can lose, you know, their finances and their income security, they can lose their job and such important things with without understanding their rights and without having a lawyer to help them navigate the process and instead we really have a system where people who have tremendous financial means are able to actually plan preventively to to keep these things from happening in their lives and can think ahead. What does it mean when I retire? You know, what does it mean for me to plan for my children to be taken care of after I'm gone and, and can spend the money to get access to lawyers to help them sort of plan and work preventively and and use the law in that way. Whereas so many families who are low income and without means instead are experiencing the law in this sort of harmful and and even structurally violent um, way without access to the same legal resources. And we as lawyers can think about our role in both helping individual people enforce those rights and changing the law more structurally so that these inequities don't exist in the first instance. So we talked earlier in the episode about you have you have to pursue action on two fronts, right? You need to have lawyers who can handle individual cases, but we also need widespread structural 
reform. And again, I think we could devote several episodes to what that structural reform mm-hmm. is. But I do want to just give you a chance to to offer a couple of priorities. If you were to kind of point to a couple areas for if we if we could have structural reform that would have the most impact on health equity, where do you see the most pressing need? Yeah, it's such a great question. Well, first, I would say that it's important to listen to impacted communities about where they see the most pressing needs. But I have been privileged to hear from from those people in the community who we have served and worked with about the, the most pressing needs that they see for more structural reform. And some of the things that I've heard are the need for housing justice. And we've talked about that a bunch today, but, you know, really thinking about what it means to have a system where um, we aren't just putting people on the street who are struggling to pay rent and that we think more radically about the importance of keeping people housed and that the goal of our housing system should really be to do whatever we can to keep people housed. It's co- it's going to cost us the whole system less money overall if we find ways to promote that and also find ways more systemically to promote the building and preservation of affordable housing because in so many places across the country, we are rapidly rapidly losing public housing and other forms of affordable housing to think dramatically about what it means to increase not only emergency rental assistance, but long-term rental assistance um, so that you know we have a, a dramatically underfunded housing choice voucher program or Section 8 program in our country where many um, jurisdictions have very long waiting lists or in, like in D.C., you can't even get on the waiting list for that support because the, the line was so long, they just closed the line and the list. But I think really looking deeply at what housing justice might mean. I think thinking about education in a very different way than we have been, thinking about the abolition of the school-to-prison pipeline and what it means to really deeply invest and prioritize those kids who have been most left behind, which really might envision a pretty radically different way of funding education. I think that food injustice is a problem that we see deeply with the families that we serve. And, And as I mentioned, you know, in so many communities, people are living in food deserts where there aren't grocery stores and and access to fresh and healthy food and and people don't have the financial means to feed their families and we know that you know those types of injustices have these lifelong health impacts. And so it is better for everybody. It is better for our whole country if we find ways to make sure that people really have food security and, and access to healthy foods and we can make policy choices. We can make policy choices to promote affordable housing, to promote grocery stores and promote access to transportation, to prioritize family preservation and family stability. And these are are some of the fundamental needs that people have right now that without them, we're really seeing this concept that injustice is an underlying condition. Hearing that, it really underscores to me that there are some federal reforms that need to happen, but it's also really local. You're talking about zoning laws and the rules that individual towns and and localities have. And so thinking of as a DC resident, right, the the policies that we have here in the district, that there needs to be a lot of grassroots uh, advocacy really at the local level too. Absolutely. And that's something that everybody can get involved in and access. 
because, you know, we're, we're heading into an election season. And so kind of looking into how different candidates are working on these issues and trying to keep up with the local news and look at legislation pending in our different jurisdictions, there really is an opportunity, I think, to have our voices heard and, and to lend our expertise to those organizations that are really working on the ground in, in pursuit of health justice. I love that answer because it it is something that we try and underscore so, so often, which is that all of these issues relate to your ballot, relate to the candidates that you are electing, right? We're recording this just a, a couple weeks out from the election. Many people have already voted, but if you haven't already, the, you know, health equity and every single issue we talked about is absolutely on the ballot this election cycle. Last last minute, and are there any other calls to action that for listeners who are really interested in this issue, are there resources that, that you would point them to or other immediate calls to action that you would give them? Yeah, I think my, my last call to action that I'd like to leave everyone with is my call to our law students, because I think that this generation in law school right now has an opportunity to do things differently. These issues that we're talking about today, they're avoidable, they're preventable, and they're unjust. And I have seen law students do such tremendous work to sort of fight against these various inequities, to really understand the role of law and to take seriously their responsibility as lawyers once they have these tools to make a tremendous impact. And it is really inspiring. And so I would just encourage law students who are out there to get involved with ACS and other organizations that are really working um, to mobilize lawyers around these issues, to get involved while you're in law school. I have my own law student graduates who are now policymakers, who are now judges. So our law students who are listening, you are going to be leaders in your communities and in our country in a way where you can change policy, you can change the law, you can change the way law is interpreted, and you can also change the lives of individuals as an attorney. And so I'm excited to hear what you all do with your careers and know that so much of the justice you can work towards in our country is also going to promote health and health equity and make our country healthier. I love that. That may be the best ending to an episode that we've had yet. (laughs) Thank you so much, Professor Cannon, for joining me today. I hope that we have a chance to to extend this conversation because there's just so many topics on this that I think would be wonderful to bring to the podcast. So thanks so much for joining us for this first one. Thank you, Jeannie. It was wonderful to talk with you. And I look forward to hearing from listeners who want to connect more deeply around this work. You can you can find more information about me and the Georgetown Health Justice Alliance on Georgetown Law's website. And we will link to your bio in the show notes and your bio does have your email. So Great. for listeners who want to get in touch with you, there is a readily easily way to do so. So thanks again. And thanks to our listeners for finding Broken Law. If you're enjoying the show, you can help us bring it to more listeners by giving us a five-star review and recommending Broken Law to a friend. If you have ideas for a future episode, maybe inspired by this one, let us know. You can email us at podcast at acslaw.org or find us on social media at ACS law. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves, and whose it does not. 